Hello and welcome to the Burning Ones podcast. Our goal is to help people all around the world experience the love and power of Jesus and live passionately devoted to Him. We pray that the podcast is just that for you. Thank you for joining us on this journey and may burning witnesses arise for Him all around the world. All right, good morning. We are excited to be invited to the party. All right, it is a joy to gather uh, with people who love Jesus, um, to be included in this moment of history, in the purposes of God, um, to be a part of this beautiful people that God is redeeming from darkness, restoring through his powerful and transforming love, uh, and commissioning um, to love him above all things and to be wildly aligned to his kingdom agenda every day of our lives um, until either our last breath or he cracks the skies. Either way, we're going to be faithful to Jesus. Um, so it's a privilege to join in with you guys. Uh, we've shared over the past two nights and the experiences there uh, what a joy it is for our family to be together and to be here with the Wilts. Um, we are growing uh, in the way that we understand being knit together and our love and honor for these guys. Um, and it really is, it's a privilege, um, it's a joy, and my wife and I feel very honored, um, very honored, uh, I can say that, very honored. Um, we're a part of a church family back in Orlando, um, a church, Habitation Church, which we planted seven years ago and are helping to lead. Um, we have an incredible team of leaders and folks that are alongside of us, um, gifted and all, all of these other things. You know, uh, We see ourselves as the under-shepherds to the great shepherd, to the good shepherd, um, as Peter would say in 1 Peter at the end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5, um, not for personal agenda or all of these other variety of influences or interests, um, but even as Jesus told Peter, Peter, do you love me? Then tend to those that belong to me. Love them. Give your life to them. Um, they're mine. So we understand we don't have a church. Jesus has a church. Um, we want to be faithful in that church in the ways that he may call us to serve and to contribute through the laying down of our lives and using all of what may be the best of us um, leveraged towards the best of others. <laughs> um, you want to take the best of what's in you and on you and leverage that in every way you know how towards making others better. That's what Jesus did. Uh, he said, don't be like worldly leaders, lording their influence and titles and power over folks. He's like, we have too much of that. He said, but I'm restoring family. What an amazing word. And in the restoration of family, I'm looking for servants. Um, I'm looking for those who will be dynamic, lively, contributing members of a healthy family who are willing to wield all of their power and influence and leverage their life as a resource towards making everyone in their sphere of responsibility better, bringing them higher. 
uh, calling them in greater ways into God and his purposes. Um, So it's a joy. Uh, We really feel uh, a kindredness in the DNA and in the heartbeat and the jealousy of what's happening here with what we are doing as well. Um, And so just know we are giving our lives for the very same thing. Um, The gospel is such an incredible thing. Uh, It creates its own context no matter where you put it. So whether it's Orlando, we know Dr. Gladstone is coming in a couple of weeks. Uh, He is just a mighty, mighty man of God. So whether it's Charlotte, uh, whether it's Harrison, uh, all over the world, the gospel creates its own context and what a privilege it is to be a part. Um, So thank you for welcoming us and having us. That wasn't my message, by the way. Um, Thank you for welcoming us and having us. Uh, If you have your Bibles, would you open up to two places? Uh, I'm going to say two places. We are going to be in those two places. Uh, You can open up to John 17. Uh, The chapter of John 17, we're going to look at a couple of verses there, being 11, 21, 22, 23, and 24. So John 17, and then the book of Ephesians. The whole book of Ephesians. Uh, I saw a few of you look at your watch. I'm not offended. (laughs) He's like, man, the book of Ephesians? Uh, We're going to helicopter ride, I promise. Um, John 17, we are going to uh, companion that with the book of Ephesians. Uh, The consideration of the intercession of Jesus and the beauty of this radiant glory that the church embodies which is what the book of Ephesians is intended to awaken in our hearts. Um, To gaze upon the beauty of the church and to be gripped with a fervor in the place of intercession, to join Jesus in what it is that he is still praying for. We want to be praying for what Jesus is praying for. I don't know if that sounds important to you. That sounds important to me. Like if Jesus is praying for something, uh, I want to make sure that of the, the variety of things that I may have an interest in in the place of prayer, I want traction with the leadership of Jesus in the place of prayer. And if there's something that's on his radar, if there's something that's burning in his heart, then I would want to know what that is so that my life can join him in whatever the investment is in the place of prayer and intercession. Um, Hebrews 7 tells us that there's an intercessor in the heavens, and it's not a woman. Intercession is not just a ministry for women uh, who don't have anything else to do. Right? Prayer meetings often are filled with women. I'm not saying that here. I've never been to one of your prayer meetings, so I'm not talking about that from a place of information. I'm just saying across the great landscape of what has become Christendom. Oftentimes, uh, men feel a greater interest and preoccupation uh, with work and material goals and financial interests and on and on and on, uh, and the responsibility of providing a life or a way of life seems to have greater interest uh, than providing a kingdom orientation to life. Um, And we've bought into what is the American dream, thinking that it's synonymous with God's dream. uh, And the two are just wildly incompatible. Um, The kingdoms of this world are going to pass. They are going to fade. 
The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. Right, Daniel 7, we have this amazing vision of the Son of Man riding upon the cloud, being given a throne at the right side of the Ancient of Days. He is handed over a kingdom that is unending, a dominion that is everlasting, and the power to bring judgment to the wild beasts that roam the four corners of the earth. The eviction notice in an eternal way from their place of jurisdiction and influence. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God. And so we need an orientation to kingdom life. And one of the ways that that influence in our hearts happens is through the place of prayer. And too often I come across men who have forfeited the responsibility of prayer to their wife in the home and what is the cultivating of an interest in the things of God from within the framework of a family. Um, Hebrews 7 says that there's an intercessor in the heavens, and he's a man. He is Jesus, the high priest, who ever liveth, Hebrews 7.25, to make intercession for us. So Jesus is the great intercessor in the heavens. He has taken up the eternal high priestly ministry. He is the one that we run to. He is the one that bears with the weaknesses. He is sympathetic of the human experience because he himself has been humbled into a human vehicle. Um, In John 11, he doesn't weep at the tomb of Lazarus at the consideration of how embarrassed he is, of how broken the human condition is. He's not weeping because of our inability to believe or to connect in faith. He's not standing there ashamed of all of those that are there. Like, when are you ever going to get it? I can't believe that this is still where you guys are. Um, He's weeping because he knows that there's a lot of work to be done before that day of ultimate reconciliation. He knows that there's a day coming where he will stand reigning upon the earth. This is Revelation 20, the the millennial reign of Christ, where the last Adam, the son of man, with his bride by his side, radiant, adorned, stunning in every possible way, will cultivate the earth with the unveiling of the knowledge of God throughout all creation, creating a space for the father to tabernacle and to abide the way that he's always longed to. The glimpse we get in the beginning where the first Adam with his bride by his side, failed to cultivate a place for God the Father to abide and to tabernacle the way that he desired. The last Adam, the Son of Man, he has overcome. He has conquered. This victorious one, alive from the dead, with the inheritance of a people who is his bride. Jesus thinks his bride is to die for. With his bride by his side, From every tribe, every nation, every tongue, they will cultivate the earth with the knowledge of God. They will succeed in the mission of creating the space that the Father desires so that this Revelation 21 descending of the throne of the Father to establish a place in creation to abide forever and ever will be achieved or accomplished the way that the beginning of the story tells us he intended or has purposed to do. And it is absolutely amazing. And so as we look at John 17 and the book of Ephesians this morning, um, it is my desire that the Spirit would grip our hearts 
with a greater intentionality and a zeal for the beauty of the church to arise throughout the earth as we know it. Where the people that have been purchased with blood would take their place on the stage of history and rise to the occasion in this moment of our generation and until the days of fulfillment when Jesus will come again. Where we would see the church the way that Jesus sees the church and where we would be overwhelmed at what it is that God unveils to us, where our hearts would be filled in a fresh way with awe and wonder at the stunning radiance of what is the church. Well, in the consideration of what is the church, we would have to qualify what we mean by church when we say church. Um, you know, as well as I do, that the church is not an event. The church is not something that happens and you need to attend it while it's happening. The church is not a physical structure. It's not a property address. It's not an order of service. The church is not an event. And we need a, a, a recalibration to the definition of the church so that we can get gripped with awe at the beauty of what it is that God has actually done to establish or to create what is the church as a new creation. The church is one of the aspects of a new creation. We experience new creation in our individual lives as our lives are transformed through a born-again experience. We become what the Bible says is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5. For if any man is in Christ, that man is now a new creature or a new creation. Old things have passed and all things have become new. One of the aspects in experiencing a new creation is in our individual lives. We are transformed by the power of God, by the bestowing upon us of his grace and the Holy Spirit's work and agenda to conform us into the image of Jesus. Well, another way that we experience a new creation is through our resurrected, glorified bodies. Where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, at the twinkling of an eye, at the sounding of the trumpet of God, those who were dead, they will be raised. And those who are alive at the time of his peering, we will be transformed together in order to join him. And in this eternal condition, we will have a transformed body and reality in order to be sustained in the place of the age to come alongside of the Son of Man as he reigns with his bride by his side. So another way that we experience new creation is where what is mortal becomes immortal. What is fleshly becomes eternal in a sense. And Paul says that it is a new creation, a resurrection reality. Well, another way that we experience new creation is through the experience of the church. The church is not just another religious group. It's not a social club. It's not just some organizational effort. It's not some event hosting team. It's not just something that undertakes social justice language or hashtags or moves. It's not something that just carries a particular political affiliation or allegiance. 
It's not something that can be described by a distinction of ethnic distinctions, language association, uh, what sort of societal class you've become a part of or you were raised in. The church is a dynamic being that God has created as a consequence of the gospel. And if you were only allowed to use Bible verses to describe what the church is, you would be hard-pressed to have enough substance to be able to describe what it is that we have embraced, what it is that we have been entertained by, what it is that we have made accommodations for. This entertainment-driven personality accommodating, man-centered, political hijacked, financial interest and motivated um, construct, it would be very hard to come to the terms of the church as we've made accommodation for it using only Bible verses because it's just not there. What it is that we have settled for and become satisfied by. I'm saying in a larger uh, system of sorts, especially here in the West. It would be very hard to come to the conclusion of what it is that most have embraced in the Western world as the church. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, the church is mine. He says, for I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Revelation 5, 8, 9, we find that Jesus has purchased a people for God and that he's done it with his own blood. In Colossians 1, we find that it is this people that have been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. In Romans 5, we find that they're the ones, this people again, that have tasted of the grace of the last Adam and that have been conquered from the inheritance of the first Adam, which was this sinful perpetuating appetite of rebellion to God and his love and leadership. We find in Ephesians 2 that there are people that are alive from the dead. They're free from the influence of rulers and powers and that their lives knit together is creating a unique and powerful habitation for God. If we used only Bible verses, we would come to terms that the church is a people and that this people is a people that are the people of God. As Peter would tell us in 1 Peter 2, they are a holy nation. They are a royal priesthood. They are a chosen race. They are those that have been rescued from the domain of the wicked one and now established in God are a people that are a living demonstration of God's power and faithfulness to transform the lives of those that pledge their allegiance to him. It would be difficult to describe the church as an event if we were only using the Bible. And that should concern us. But the Bible tells us that the church is a people and that God's jealousy has always been a people. It has always been a family. Genesis 2, we get God's jealousy for a people, for a family with Adam and Eve. Genesis 12, we get the continuation of God's jealousy for a people, for a family, for all the nations of the earth to be blessed through the man Abraham and to be reconciled to God and his eternal purpose. 
In Genesis 50, we get the continuation of God's jealousy communicated through Joseph, that God is using the lives that are involved in this story for the saving of many lives and for the restoring and the reconciling of yes, in those days, it would have been the consideration of Joseph in Egypt. So Jew and Gentile and the harvesting of God's glory found in both realities. We get it in Exodus 19 with Moses standing before the Mount of God when God unveils himself with epic glory. And Moses realizes that God is looking for a holy possession. He's looking for a people. He's looking for a family where he can dwell in the midst of them and be present in a unique way and tend to his people and his purposes the way that he's always had a heart that is on fire for. We find it in the man Jesus as he is standing uniquely upon the earth in the gospel account. And in John 17, the whole chapter is extraordinary because it's, you could put it this way, it's God talking to God by the Spirit about us. And the Father and the Son are engaged in a conversation about what this whole thing is about. And in John 17, we find in several places, verses where Jesus is praying for the people that he has been promised. You need to see your life in the context of the inheritance of Jesus. You need to understand your reality your life, the value of your being as being a part of this people that Jesus has been promised. We understand in the days of the Moravians, more than a hundred years of 24-7 worship and prayer, ongoing adoration and exaltation of the person of Jesus and joining with him in the place of the burden of his heart and intercession. And we know that it launched one of the greatest mission movements the world has known across the timeline of history. But shouldn't that be the expectation? Man, that those that draw near to him, those that give massive amounts of their life and time and attention to being attentive to him in his heart, shouldn't it be that we be overcome by him and that his interests become our interests his dream becomes our dream. The things that he longs to have someone tarry with him about become the things that consume us. They drive us. They become the fuel in our heart fire. And we become a people that are possessed with, yes, the person of Jesus, but also the purposes of Jesus that fill his heart, that he reveals to his faithful friends. And they would stand on the shoreline Many of them from the Moravians venturing out into the nations because they knew that God desired a people and they saw fit to waste their lives on Jesus and to give themselves to, yes, the high call in Christ to love him, which is the first call. We come to Jesus. We ascend the hill of the Lord to be so deeply satisfied in God that we can do anything and go anywhere. It doesn't matter anymore because I have him. And his smile over my life obedience is what creates my definition of success. 
And so all of the other things, all of the other metrics, all of the other systems, they've been abolished. And now what stands alone is the smile of God over my life in the place of my being and value where how I live in loving obedience to Jesus is the definition of success for my life. And they would stand on the shoreline about to push off out into the nations to reach people across the waters burdened by the reality that God's church must be full in the place of Jesus's inheritance. Jesus has been promised a people from every people. And until there is a people from every people and all Israel has been saved, the end will not come. And so realizing that the two are interdependent, they are interconnected of sorts, and they are feeding off of and into one another. That is the reality that Paul communicates in Romans 10, 11, and 12, or in 9, 10, and 11, rather. Um, not 12. 12 is the call to actually lay your life down as a living sacrifice in relationship to what Paul has communicated, yes, in 1 through 8, but specifically in 9, 10, and 11. But what Paul communicates in 9, 10, and 11 is that the fullness of the Gentiles will come in and all of Israel will be saved. Not either or, but both and. And they would press off the shoreline going out into the nations. And we're familiar with the song that they would sing. With this declaration that would rise, yes, out of their hearts, but it would come across their lips. Many of them, as they were looking at their families, knowing that they would never see their loved ones again. Knowing wives, husbands, children. But considering the cost that Jesus has paid in order to purchase a people with blood and the jealousy that would overtake them in the realization that a people from every people is what he's been promised. They would say, may the lamb that was slain reap the reward of his suffering. May the lamb that was slain reap the reward of his suffering. And in John 17, the consideration of suffering is upon the life of Jesus. He is just a couple of days short of handing himself over. Um, Jesus was not murdered. He was surrendered. <laughs> he said, no man takes my life from me, for I willfully, joyfully lay it down on my own accord. For the Father has given me power to lay my life down and also to take it up again. And for the joy set before him, the writer of Hebrews tells us, he endured the cross. Well, the joy set before him is what he's praying about in John 17. And John 17 reveals to us that he's actually praying about the people that he's been promised. And in the opening of the chapter, he says, I'm not praying out loud because I don't think the father hears me. He says, I'm actually praying for your interest and for your benefit. He says, I'm praying the way that I'm praying so that those of you that are gathered round about can be privy and can benefit from the conversation that my father and I have been involved in. He says, I want to let you in on what is the heart posture and what is the heart purpose about what all of this is actually about. He says, I'm praying so that you can understand that I'm not confused. 
so that I'm not mismanaging my time, my power, but that it's actually all being leveraged towards what it is that we are interested in. And he begins the conversation by talking about this people. And we considered last night in, in a fractional way that he's not taking this people out of the world, but that he's actually sending them into the world the same way that he has been apostelloed or commissioned. And he says, leave them in the world, preserve them from the wicked one, but make them a sign and a wonder. And in verse 11, he begins to pray about the way that that is actually going to create an evidence in the world. We have to consider for ourselves what is the crowning achievement of the gospel. What is the greatest thing that the gospel has accomplished or achieved? It's important to be tied to the right answer for the question so that the jealousy of our lives can actually be channeled into the right direction. What is the most stunning thing that the gospel has produced? What is the most ultimate or epic consequence of the gospel? Is it healing? As amazing as healing is in the variety of ways that it's experienced, is it the raising of the dead and how versatile that may seem and how impossible that may be perceived in order to accomplish? Is it power to heal bodies? Is it power to raise the dead? Is it power to prophesy, to tell people their address, their birthday, to tell you uh, what type of money you may be holding in your left pocket uh, or in accordance with change or, or what have you? What is the greatest accomplishment of the gospel? Is it deliverance to see people that are demonically bound or to see people that are held captive to cravings and lustful desires or perverted addictions? Um, is it deliverance? I promise you it's not a trick question. The Bible would describe the greatest accomplishment of the gospel as being a people that have been transformed, delivered from the world system, raised from the dead, who are now alive to God, being conformed to the image of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, that have been made to be a royal priesthood together. The crowning achievement of the gospel is a family in God that is a royal priesthood. It is the crowning achievement, and it is one of the greatest demonstrations of the majesty of Jesus. It is a sign. It is a wonder. It is a peculiar people that have been made into a royal priesthood. Now, maybe we don't necessarily get connected with, with, with the right amount of energy that's associated with that answer, but possibly that's because we haven't necessarily lived our lives with the right definition or understanding of how spectacular the church is supposed to be as a people that have become family in God. 
And if we've related to the church in a consumer type way, well, I'm looking for the church that's going to fit my needs stylistically, that's going to be the way that I want. And our treatment of the church has come out of our evaluation of the church more in a way like how we would go to the mall or look at Amazon, where we only kind of shop the things that have our interest or that have gained some sort of traction in an appetite that we have, then we are utterly missing the beauty of the church altogether. We are utterly missing the beauty of the church altogether, and we'll get to that as, again, we helicopter ride over the book of Ephesians. Some of you are considering how long we've already been going, and you're like, man, we've got the whole book of Ephesians to go. But in John 17, Jesus is praying for the people, and he's asking the Father for the evidence, the sign and the wonder that is going to create what we could call the manifestation of the power of God embodied in a people. God longs to be embodied in a people. That's the idea of the burning bush as Moses was confronted with it. It's God embodied in something that's plain, ordinary. It's this randomness of the bush out in the place of the wilderness. But yet it's all consumed by a fire, by a holy jealousy. God longs to have embodiment. And Jesus is praying for it in John 17. And in verse 11, he introduces the idea of a people that are one. He says, make them one, even as you and I are one. Now here we find our reference point for the oneness or the unity that Jesus is actually praying for. And it's something that only through the power of God in the gospel, it can be created or it can actually be authenticated. Where God himself becomes our reference point for family. Where God himself as he is as a divine community, father, son, and spirit becomes our reference point for family. Where family, rather in how amazing your experience has been or how tragic your experience has been, is not enough as a reference point for the jealousy that Jesus has as he's praying this prayer. He says, make them one as you and I are one. Well, now the bar is high. <laughs> now the bar is high. He says, make them one even as you and I are one. Give them a oneness that's going to create an evidence in the world that I am who I say I am and that you have actually sent me. He actually continues it and asks for it again in verse 21 of John 17. Make them one so that the whole world will know. The language there for know is to have an evidence that produces a desire it's the undeniable, irrefutable evidence where in verse 21 that the world will know it rallies on not just someone being interested in the truth that's been revealed to them, but it's a knowing that creates a pledging of allegiance. It's where the world is going to know it and they're going to be so stunned by it that they're going to give their whole life to it. There's going to be an irrefutable evidence that is going to create the, the energy to pledge their allegiance to it. Well, before we get too excited about that, in verse 22, he prays for it again. So that the whole world will know. 
And this time, when he says the whole world will know, it's an irrefutable evidence that's going to create a hostility. Where men won't necessarily jump on board, but they won't be able to deny the reality thereof. And even though it's irrefutable, there'll be a resistance. There'll be a rage. Right? This Genesis 10 rage that filled the nations against the knowledge of God. This Psalm 2, why do the nations rage against Yahweh and his choice of his son as the ruler of the universe and of the creation? He says in 21, the world's going to know it. It'll be so undeniable that they'll pledge their allegiance to it. In verse 22, he says the world's going to know it and it'll be irrefutable evidence, but it'll create a hostility. It'll create a, there'll be a provoking, but there'll also be a resisting and a raging. And in verse 23, he prays it again, but in a different way. He says, I've actually given them glory. The glory that you've given to me, I've given it to them so that they can be perfected in their unity. We have glory to become a mature family. We have glory to become the people of God. We have glory in the invitation to join into what is this Trinitarian fellowship, to join into the experience of God fellowshipping as he is. We've been brought into the experience of fellowship to know the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and to be dynamically or radically, wildly transformed as a people that are family that produce an evidence that the rest of the world cannot deny. To become family... So much so that the rest of the world looks in awe at what it is that the power of God has actually been able to accomplish whenever it sees this people that Jesus says is going to be the evidence that rocks the world. Think about that. Jesus says this people is going to be the greatest evidence that is going to rock the world as we know it. Not prophetic accuracy. Not healing gifts, not deliverings or deliverance, not raising the dead. He said, this family, if I get this people the way that I'm praying for it, it is absolutely going to shake the nations of the earth. The crowning achievement of the gospel is a family that had become a royal priesthood. And Jesus is praying for this priesthood. He's praying for this people. In John 17, 24... He says, this people that I've been promised, I have to have them. He says, I have to have them because I want them to be with me where I am so that they can behold my beauty and I can reveal or unveil myself to them forever and ever and ever. Jesus is interceding for a people in John 17. But I wonder, are we? Jesus is interceding and he is gripped with a jealousy in the place of prayer for this people that God is transforming and establishing as his ambassadors and representatives throughout the nations of the earth to be planted and to live as heavenly colonies until his son returns. Jesus is interceding for them. He's interceding for the glory and the evidence of the church to fill the nations of the world where this body or this family 
would take their place and rise to the occasion. And when we come to the book of when we come to the book of Ephesians, we have to know that Paul has in mind the intercession of Jesus from John 17. We have to understand and allow the intercession of Jesus to frame in the way that we go through or the way that we kind of travel through the book of Ephesians. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul begins with God has done his part. There was a mystery from before the ages that God purposed. He worked it out, the administration of that ministry in Christ on the cross, that there's an inheritance now that belongs to the saints, to the people of God. When you get down towards verses 15, 16, Paul begins with a jealousy to say that I've been praying for you. And he begins to write even in a prayer for those that are in Ephesus. And he's petitioning the father of glory. And he says, I'm praying that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Christ to illuminate your understanding where you could actually see things that you have not seen, gaze upon things that you have not beheld, and that God would give you the turning on of the lights to see things that maybe have been cloudy, mysterious, they've been veiled. He's like, God is going to have to give you grace to see something that is hidden in plain sight. And he says, but I'm asking the father for this, to open your eyes, to give you insight, to give you understanding. He says, and without a spirit of wisdom and revelation, there's not really a shot that we're going to have at being able to discern the terms the way that God has determined. And he continues on. With Jesus at the end of Ephesians 1, alive from the dead, ascended on high, reigning above rulers and powers, gloriously reigning above every name that is to be named in the heavens on the earth, Jesus, the victorious bridegroom king at the right hand of the Father, having accomplished the mission of laying his life down and it being raised up again, conquering sin, death, and the grave and ascended on high is the way that Paul ends Ephesians 1. For more simple terms, we could say Ephesians 1 is Jesus alive from the dead, reigning above powers. God has done his part. He has made a way. Ephesians chapter 2 begins, and when you tie it together, it becomes very provoking. If Ephesians 1 ends with Jesus alive from the dead, reigning above powers, Paul now continues with the interest of God's eternal purpose to have a people for himself. He says, and now remember, you too used to be dead in your sin and transgressions. Are you tracking with the continuation of the thought? You too used to be dead in your sin and transgressions. You too used to be bound by rulers and powers, governed by their influence, living as a captive to a self-indulgent way of life and a variety of those satisfactions because of the nature and the appetites that you had as an inheritance. Verse 4. But God, 
made a way for you to raise you from the dead. Connection, Ephesians 1, Jesus, alive from the dead and exalted, reigning above powers. Ephesians 2, you also were dead, but God did what couldn't be done. He accomplished mission impossible, and you too are now alive from the dead, coming out of the governance of the influence of rulers and powers, and you too are now ascended with Christ to a reigning place as the adorned bride or the exalted people of God. He says, because he came and preached peace to you, those of you that already thought you were near and those of you that felt far, and now because of what was accomplished in the gospel, the wisdom of the cross, the power of the blood, God is now reconciling Jew and Gentile into the expression of one new man and making them to be family. And in making them to be family, he has destroyed all of the hostility, the dividing wall of hostility, the eternal enmity with people groups. And in Paul's consideration, it's the most absurd hostility that could be possible. Jew and Gentile. And he says, God has done it. He's destroyed the dividing wall. He has conquered all of the hostility. All of the enmity and the, uh, the, the perpetual racism and the rage between the conversations of people groups as they fill the earth and are scattered throughout the nations. God has accomplished in the gospel the power to reconcile what is the raging hostility of peoples that would never consider to be family, much less family in God. And he says, God has done it. He has made the way. You are alive from the dead. You're no longer bound to the influence of rulers and powers or the world system as we know it. God has now actually reconciled all of our racism, all of our rages, all of our differences, all of our prejudices, and he's made us now to be a people that are family in God and a demonstration that provides an evidence that has to be a sign and a wonder. He says, because our relating to one another is no longer based off of all of the subcategorizing that the world provides for us. Our reconciling in God to now be family and to demonstrate the expression of one new man is no longer about black church, white church, rich church, poor church. It's no longer about what side of town I grew up on. It's not about what sports team I've pledged my allegiance to. It's not about what political party I've pledged my allegiance to. Paul's consideration is that all of these conversations that create unique distinctions and categories for people that at times pro uh, provides or produces an enmity or this, this undercurrent of hostility or preference or prejudice, God has abolished all of the ways we used to relate to one another, and the gospel has created a consequence, and it is a people that are a new creation, that are family in God. And the gospel is more powerful than our preference. The gospel is more powerful than our prejudice. 
The gospel is more powerful than the ongoing perpetuating of these lower level fleshly distinctions and categories where, well, like if you're not like this, then I can't relate to you. The gospel has abolished all of what used to be the dividing walls. And now we have zero reason or license to be divided except for the ones that we willingly entertain and embrace. Because the gospel has issued power into the human experience to raise us from the dead of all of the world's conversations and hostilities. And now our being in God and our bearings as the people of God demonstrates a reality that is so unique and so powerful that the world will never be able to manufacture it. They can't buy it. No matter how hard political folks may try to leverage the Christian audience as just another demographic of people, they can't mass produce it. They can't incentivize it. They can't work it out with their own intellect. God has done something so awesome to create a new people that the world stands in awe at the irrefutable evidence whenever it is on display in front of them. And he says at the end of Ephesians 2, that God is uniquely knitting our lives together and making us to be a habitation by the power of his spirit, a place where God is abiding. He is uniquely present. He has found his place of home in the midst of us. That's habitation. It's an organism's uh, most conducive context for life and ongoing mission and growth and development. In Ephesians 3, Paul says in verse 10 that the church now bears the responsibility to actually personify this reality and to prophesy or to give instruction to rulers and powers. That the church bears the responsibility. Now again, this is in relationship to chapters 1 and 2. So this is uniquely tied into what has already been the conversation. I know we have chapter divides, and a lot of times we think that there's a disconnect in the flow of thought. But Ephesians 3.10, and now the manifold wisdom of God on display in the church. Again, in relationship to the exalted man, Jesus, the exalted people of God, living as a sign and a wonder, an evidence, a royal priesthood, the demonstration of the majesty of Jesus embodied in a people. This is in connection, the manifold wisdom of God in Ephesians 3.10. The church bears this unique responsibility to personify that, to actually embody the reality of that, to actually live this thing out. And to be a sign, to be an evidence, to be a testimony. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus says this gospel of the kingdom must be preached throughout the nations of the world as a testimony. Testimony is connected to the testimony that he's asking for in John 17. It's a people it's not just mass gospel events. It's not even necessarily just the Bible in every language. But it is a people from every people what Jesus has been promised and what he's praying for. And in Ephesians 3.10, he says the church bears the responsibility to actually live this thing out. 
practically on the ground. Yes, we're family theologically. Praise God, brother. But we are going to become family formationally. And the work of God in the midst of us to knit our lives together so that in a formational way and not just in something that we ascribe to in an intellectual or theological way actually becomes so real in the midst of us that the rest of the world becomes provoked by it either to allegiance or to rage. And the days are coming where this is going to be more necessary than it has ever been as the increase of the rage of the nations continues until the return of Jesus. And he says it's the church's responsibility to embody this as a reality. And he says to prophesy or to give instruction to rulers and powers. To put this in the simplest way possible. What Paul is saying is that every time rulers and powers look upon the beauty and the reality of what God has accomplished in the church, they should be reminded that Jesus is going to get what he's praying for. They should be instructed that the power of God by the work of the Spirit throughout the nations of the world is still accomplishing the eternal purpose of rescuing and redeeming and raising people from the dead and freeing them from their influence and conforming them more to the image of Jesus than discipling them in demonic desire and agenda. In another way that you could put it, every time rulers and powers look at the church, they should be reminded of how defeated they are. Every time rulers and powers look at the church, they should be reminded that their influence no longer has traction in our hearts or lives. Every time rulers and powers look at the church, they should be instructed that the power of God's influence at work in the hearts and lives of those that believe is actually giving the eviction notice to their jurisdiction that was at one time present in the lives that were a part of their agenda and current and sway. And when the rest of the world looks at the church, they should see what it looks like to live free from the powers. <laughs> when the rest of the world looks at the church, they should see God embodied in a community that makes the Trinity believable. We don't have unity because of conformity. We have unity by beautiful power in diversity, where not all the pieces and the components are the same. And we're actually contending by God's grace and power to knit our lives together, not because we're conforming to some cookie-cutter model or some mode of being, but where all of our individual distinctions, all of our way of being, how God has made us with all of our different personalities and all of the little quirks and things about who we are, we're not trying to be like the main guy, but we understand that the main guy is actually the man Jesus. And that when Jesus becomes the center stage and main attraction, that we get conformed to his image rather than just an allegiance with a stream or some iconic figure or some dynamic personality and we have unity through diversity and when the rest of the world looks at 
the church as a family and as a community, it should make the Trinity believable. Where God is one and he is beautifully unified, but yet chooses to distinctly be revealed or represented in three unique persons. Where we are unique persons, yet we're not competing and comparing. We're not conforming. We are being conformed to the image of Jesus. And in our diversity, we are being made by a gospel power at work in the midst of us into a oneness that is otherworldly and supernatural that produces a unified family in God. And at the end of Ephesians 3, we have a popular verse, right? Which I get it. There is a devotional application and all of that is cool, right? I'm not saying that those things are wrong. Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able, he closes chapter 3 this way, now to him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we could ever ask, think, or imagine, to him be glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, forever and ever, amen. Paul's thought process here is not just what individual dream we carry. Well, anything that I come to God with, he's able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that I could ask, think, or imagine. Again, we're in a flow of thought. And Paul's consideration is the exalted man, Jesus, and the exalted people of God, reigning above the rule of powers and living free from their influence and becoming this beautiful priesthood in God as a new creation. And Paul's thought process is if God can actually do this, God can do anything. Because this is the most awesome or epic or absurd thing that you could ever ask for, think about, or imagine. And God is not just going to do it, but he is going to do it in such an exceedingly abundant way that beyond whatever limited scope with our natural frame of thought we could have come up with or produced to consider, God is going to blow that out of the water in the way that he actually accomplishes this goal that he has in his heart. And Paul's thought is, man, if God can do this, just ask him for anything. Because if he can actually pull this off, let me tell you, baby, God can do it all. If he can make this happen, any other thing that you may be thinking about, dreaming about, because this is the greatest consequence in the world system, and God is actually going to accomplish this, he can do everything. And because of that, it is him who deserves glory and awe and praise, and worship, and adoration forever in Christ. Amen. Now, when you flip over to chapter 4, Paul starts in verse 1, and he says, now, hey, guys, walk worthy of this call with which you've been called. Now, again, this isn't some individual devotional application, meaning like, oh, well, I've called, I'm called to be a school teacher, so I got to walk that out in a way that's worthy, or like, I'm called to do this, or I'm called to do that. No, there's an hour, there's an us, right? As we've been exhorted even earlier. When Jesus said how to pray, it was a, uh, an implication that the I is not greater than the us, the I is not greater than the us. He said, when you pray, pray this way, our. 
that first word should shatter all of our individualistic, isolated, and amputated desires at times that we carry. Right? Graduation is not amputation. <laughs> We're like, you've just become so mature in God that you no longer need the church. Well, that's for those extroverted folks, and I don't really need that. Like, you know, I can feed myself at home. I can pray. Like, I have everything that there is to have of God in the secret place. You are wildly inaccurate, and that is in every way possible not true. There is a revelation of God that is reserved for the people of God. You cannot have everything that there is to have of God all by yourself. And most of us are desiring graduation through amputation. Have you ever considered throughout the New Testament writings, once you get outside of the gospel and then before revelation, there are 58 one another statements. The implications here is that the majority of what the New Testament is prescribing and inspiring will be impossible to live without one another. You must have another in order to live in the reality of what we say the gospel has actually accomplished. Paul says, um, let's say in Colossians, stop lying to one another. If you don't have another in your life, there's no one else for you to lie to unless you lie to yourself all the time. Bear one another's burdens. Be forgiving with one another. Be long-suffering, tender, kind with one another. There are 58 one another statements implying that there is an hour that the gospel is after. Acts 2, when they responded to the gospel and pledged their allegiance to King or to King Jesus, Acts 2, 42 through 46, well, 42 starts with, and now they devoted themselves daily to a shared way of life in God by his love and leadership. There's an hour, there's a they, there's an us that the gospel explicitly implies our inclusion of. And the terms of amputation is not something that you can satisfy with Bible verses, right? We at times bring upon ourselves what Paul considered to be the worst judgment that a believer could experience. In 1 Corinthians 5, because I get it, everybody's always championing, oh, well, you know, it's all about me, and Jesus loves me, and, and I'm so amazing, and I, 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 and mine, 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 and you know, well, brother, I've got Bible verses because Jesus leaves the 99 to come after the one. And I'm that one, and praise God, he would have done it if it were just for me. Well, newsflash, it wasn't only for you. It wasn't. It wasn't only for you. Right? It is for me. Praise God. I'm glad that it is. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, put the one out for the sake of the 99. He says, put out the unrepentant brother. He says, put out the one that has chosen in an ongoing way to live in an immoral way of life that is going to create a consequence that is like leaven in the whole lump. And he says, for the preservation and the purity, the authenticity of the lump, put the one out for the sake of what's happening with the 99. He says, put him out of the fellowship. No longer eat with such a one. And the consideration of a shared way of life, we do this to ourselves. We put ourselves out and then call it maturity. 
We put ourselves out and then call it the celebration of my own isolation or my individualistic desires where I have everything that I can have and I'm satisfied with only God alone. We bring this judgment upon our own lives when Paul considered it to be the worst form of judgment that could actually come upon the life of someone that was included in the family of God. He says, put him out. And so starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, he says, now walk worthy of this call. Now together, as the people of God, as this family, walk worthy of that calling. The calling to be that people. Which is why in verse 3, he says, now you're going to have to learn how to fight or to contend. Fight to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He continues on with the ascension of Jesus and the giving of these gifts, the, these variety of leadership and influential gifts that are embodied in people, not so that they can be carried or applauded, but so that they can actually find their bearings and their place of service by providing equipment to the body where they provide an equipment to the body that gives the body an equipping that actually awakens them, where they come to life in a particular way in God and his purposes and get to work on a daily basis in what is considered to be a life of full-time ministry. So these leadership gifts provide equipment to the body so the body can be equipped and awakened into and unto a full-time life of ministry in a variety of ways. Where the body then, by these variety of ways that it is working and in service, contributing to God's purposes day by day in a shared way of life, calls and causes the body to build itself up in love into him who is actually the head. And then you keep on, and Paul considers in verse 30 of Ephesians 4, he says, don't quench the Holy Spirit. But he's revealing that one of the greatest ways that we can quench the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our midst is to not shepherd our hearts well. Whenever relational and circumstantial issues arise between us as people, as family. We know that because in 31 and 32, he says, please, the language is strong. He says, I implore you, almost like I'm begging you. I am pleading with you. Evaluate what's going on in your heart. And if you carry any animosity, any jealousy, any envy, any anger, if you carry any wrath, any malice, not just towards the world at large, but in the community of faith. If there are people from within the family that you are harboring things in your heart towards, this is the connection with quenching the spirit that is at work in the midst of us, again, to produce in power the people that are a sign, a wonder, and an evidence. And one of the greatest ways that we stunt the work and the growth of that people is to not shepherd our hearts accurately. Where we're allowing the influence 
of rulers and powers to get traction in our hearts to make us think things and feel things towards the people that we are covenantally anchored with. Which is why he starts chapter 5 by saying, please be imitators of God as you live your lives, relating to one another and interacting with the world around you. You're no longer children of the dark. You're now to live in the light. Consider all of the way of life that you are undertaking and be responsible with the power of God that is at work in you and among you in order to create the consequence of this evidence. And then he gets into a variety of ways that we relate to one another. And this is going to be the relational distinctions. And he starts in chapter 5 of Ephesians with a man and his bride. And he says that it's actually glorious because it's mysterious. And the reference point is Jesus and the church. And he says that God is producing a people in Ephesians 5.27 for Jesus without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. A bride that is holy and blameless. A people of his own possession. And he continues on with a variety of other relational dynamics. He gets into how children relate to parents and how parents relate to children. He gets into how slaves relate to masters and masters to slaves. Not to condone or to endorse slavery, but to bring an application in their unique context that there is no space or place that the gospel is not to invade and to inform and to inspire, longing to produce the consequence of this evidence. And so he says, there's no touch point of your life that is off limits. God is after something. There is no space, there is no conversation where the gospel is not working, where the Spirit's jealousy and agenda is not actively moving on behalf of what it is that God desires to have for himself. And that crosses over into the beginning of chapter 6. And then we have these warfare passages in chapter 6. But when you now see these warfare passages in chapter 6 in relationship to Paul's conversation throughout the remainder of Ephesians, I pray that it will create a different effect in our hearts than it ever has before. Paul then says, stand strong or firm in the Lord and in the power of his might. He says, and take upon yourself the full armor of God. That's 10 and 11, because then in verse 12 of Ephesians 6, we're familiar with this. He says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with powers, with rulers, with influence in an unseen realm of a wicked and corrupt hierarchy. And they are absolutely militant and hell-bent and determined on resisting the manifesting of what it is that Jesus is praying for. Paul is saying, when you set your life up to actually go after this thing, 
Just know all of hell is going to be against you. When you set your life up to walk worthy of this call, to embody this as a reality, when you understand the terms of what Jesus is interceding for and what the power of the Spirit is longing to see accomplished in the midst of us, when you actually see this the right way that you're supposed to see this, when that spirit of wisdom and revelation and understanding and insight actually opens up the eyes of our heart to where we can gaze upon the beauty of the church and see the glory of God in the church and what God is looking to do in the church. He says, man, when you actually set your life up to go after this, understand that there is going to be resistance on every side from demonic agenda to deconstruct this, to destroy this, to dissolve every effort that you put your life towards. For we wrestle not with flesh and blood. It's not names and faces, but it's inspiration embodied in people longing to derail what it is that God has set into motion in Christ. But our encouragement is that there's no devil in hell. There's no company of rulers or powers that can derail what God has set into motion in Christ. And though every bit of an unseen realm in wickedness and corruption and demonic desire would long to dismantle the sign and wonder and evidence that Jesus is interceding for and actually producing in an ongoing way throughout the nations of the world as this testimony. This is our anchor, is that it is God's purpose and not ours. It is God's power that is at work and not ours. And in every way where we may feel insufficient or unable to actually pull this thing off, God is working. And Paul says there's a wrestling because they're longing to create an influence that would actually deceive us to where we open up to an influence that would begin a work in our own hearts to destroy the evidence of this testimony and then rally others at large towards the the, the move or the momentum or the direction of actually living out desires to destroy this testimony. But Paul knows that God is going to have what he's after. And for us, as we've gathered here this morning, I've been asking the Lord to open our eyes to the beauty of the church. And through the power of God's spirit, apprehending us in a fresh way, that we would join the man Jesus in his intercession for this sign, this testimony, this evidence to fill this city, this region and for that work throughout the nations of the world. We want to be praying for what Jesus is praying for. And he's praying for his bride to arise. He's praying for his church. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This Ephesians 6, gates of hell longing to prevail against the church, Our glory is in Christ, and he is at work on our behalf to create the possession of this people from every people.
and God is going to do it. I'm going to ask you to stand with me because I'd like to close in a particular way. Uh, in some ways, uh, I would like to transition into a time of prayer together this morning. Um, where we ask the Spirit to grip our hearts in a new way, in a fresh way. This isn't to assume that there's not a pre-existing jealousy for the church. Um, I, I'm not uh, assuming that at all. I actually assume rather uh, the direct opposite of that, uh, that there already is. Um, that there already is. But that there would be more and more and more. That there would be greater and greater and greater. Where we would see with the eyes of our hearts and the illumination of our understanding. The radiant beauty of the church. And once we see it, we'll never be able to unsee it. That's the beauty of God's grace to open our eyes. Once you see, once you see it, you'll never be able to unsee it. And once you see it, you'll never be able to treat it the same way. Once you see it, you'll never be able to consider your life involvement or investment in it the same way. But where the planting, man, what kindness has been poured out upon us to include our lives in the people of God. Man, what mercy, even while we were yet sinners and rebels and hostile to God, even while we were yet dead in our trespasses and living sin satisfied, what mercy poured out upon us that God would raise us from the dead and with his own effort in an ongoing way, would continue to transform us, to make us this glorious company, this family, to shine forth his faithfulness and to be the demonstration of his power. Look at what God has done. Oh, look what the Lord has done. <laughs> but I'd like to take a couple of moments and just, if we could, enter into... I'm a time of prayer together. I'm going to ask, where, where, is, where is my brother that, man, is so amazing on the keys? <gasps> he was right here? Oh, anybody? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's super awkward. But as she begins to play for us and with us, I'm just going to ask you to posture your heart. Man, let's set our gaze in an intentional way upon the Lord in whatever way we may know how. And as we set our gaze upon the Lord, um, that effort this morning, uh, I'm going to invite you towards a particular request. This morning, we're going to ask Jesus to open up our eyes to the beauty of his church. We're going to ask Jesus to open up our eyes and the eyes of our heart to the beauty of his church. And that in what God privileges us to be able to see or to behold, to the degree of the glimpse that we are graced to be able to gaze upon, 
that our lives would become so rocked, that our lives would become jealous. Now in some way, maybe we can understand why in John 2 and in Matthew 21, Jesus would cry out, zeal for your house has consumed me. And then in that, after we ask the Lord for grace to see the beauty of the church, I'm just going to invite you to a place of intercession for the church this morning. I'm going to invite you to begin to join this great high priest and eternal intercessor in the place of prayer and intercession this morning. And we together as the people of God are going to join in with a zeal for his house. We're going to join in with God's desire that he's going to deposit in our hearts. We're going to join in with the man Jesus to begin to cry out for him to have this people from every people and for him to make this people formationally the sign and wonder and the evidence that is going to provoke the world either to allegiance or to rage. Lord, we just don't want you to do it in those guys out there as if to assume that we could just intercede and then become bypassed or overlooked. But Lord, we want you to have what you want in us. Do it in us, King Jesus. Do it in us, King Jesus. Have your way in us together as a people and as a family. Do the work that needs to be done in our hearts. Do the work that needs to be done in our lives. Do the work that needs to be done to make us the family that is the sign, that is the wonder, that is the testimony, that is the evidence, that is the power of God on display, that is the royal priesthood, that is the evidence of the majesty of Jesus. Do it in us. Us, King Jesus, we pray. Come on, let's just begin to ask the Lord together. Open our eyes this morning, Lord. Open our eyes this morning, Lord. Come on, we're going to tarry with him for a moment. Could you not tarry with me? We're going to tarry with him for a few moments in the place of prayer. Open our eyes, open our eyes, open our eyes to see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Open our eyes to see the exalted man Jesus of Ephesians 1, alive from the dead, ascended on high, reigning above powers and every name that is to be named. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord. Open the eyes of our hearts. But not just to see the exalted man, Jesus, 
but to see this exalted company that he's been promised. Daniel says in his vision in chapter 7, I saw an exalted people serving alongside of him and attending to him. A beautiful people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. Revelation 5 and 7 gives us another glimpse of the beauty of the reality of this exalted family from every tribe, every nation, every tongue. This adorned bride standing beside the last Adam, the Son of Man. Open our eyes, Lord. Open our eyes, Lord. Open, 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 open. Open, 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 open. Give grace this morning, Lord, to see what we've never seen. Give grace this morning, Lord, to see in a greater way what we've already been given a glimpse of so that no matter where we may feel we are across the spectrum, more, Lord, more, Lord, greater, greater. Thank you again for listening today. We pray that it has fanned into flame the love that you have for him. If you would like more information about Burning Ones, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, follow us on social media, visit our website at www.burningones.org or download our app.